Good morning. In this scripture passage famously quoted by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the prophet Amos sharply reminds the people of Israel that correct worship is meaningless in the absence of justice for the poor. These strong words continue to resonate for the church today, calling us to examine whether our worship propels us to pursue justice for the least of these. Let us listen now for the word of God as it comes to us this morning through the prophet Amos. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, starting in verse 16. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me?
God, open our ears to hear the wisdom of your word and make our hearts receptive to the ways in which you challenge us to love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our gospel lesson for today is one of my favorite selections from one of my favorite books in the New Testament. For me, it encapsulates so much about Jesus and his message, both in his own time and today. Jesus presents people with a radical teaching that should be received with great joy, but is instead responded to with violent rejection. This is a pattern that we see recurring many times throughout history as God's prophets bring good news to the poor. We, not too long ago, celebrated the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who preached a gospel of peace and liberation only to have his life taken from him in an act of hateful violence. What is it that gets under society's skin about a message as seemingly wonderful as good news for the poor, release of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberation for the oppressed? This passage from Luke is very enlightening in attempting to answer that question. Because on one level, the answer is simple, right? Liberation of the oppressed is bound to upset those who profit from systems of oppression. Later in the Gospel of Luke, we will see those in power, both in the religious and political institutions, collaborate to try to bring an end to Jesus' threatening message of liberation. But in Jesus' time, and increasingly so in our own time, those people on top who greatly profit from systems of oppression make up a very small minority of the population. While it is easy to see why that small minority would construe good news for the poor as bad news for their own stranglehold on wealth and power, it is not as clear why your average person who does not stand to profit from the oppression of others would also reject Jesus's good news. But the story from Luke provides an explanation. When Jesus reads the words from the prophet Isaiah at the synagogue in Nazareth and proclaims that today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, the people react positively. The gospel writer tells us that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. You can imagine the note of pride in their voices when the people of Nazareth commend their hometown boy. Isn't this Joseph's son? As we read in the Gospel of John, Nazareth tended to get dismissed as a backwater town of no importance. As we hear in Nathaniel's observation, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In Jesus' bold words, the people of Nazareth hear a prophet they can claim with pride as their own. But Jesus quickly burst that bubble. Instead of leaving it at that and accepting the accolades of his hometown, Jesus proves himself to be a real prophet, reaping the reward that truth tellers tend to receive. 
he brings up two stories from the Hebrew scriptures that illustrate that God's gift of liberation is not given exclusively to those who think of themselves as God's favorites. He reminds the crowd that in a time of great need, the prophet Elijah was not sent to a needy widow of Israel, but to a needy widow in Sidon, a Gentile. Similarly, he points out that Elisha, similar name, but different guy, uh, was not sent to heal one of the many lepers among the people of Israel, but a Syrian, another Gentile. God's abundant love, Jesus says, is not constrained by religious or ethnic boundaries. Now, I want to make myself very clear here, because recent events have illustrated that Jewish people in our country and around the world are still too often victims of prejudice and violence. This story does not illustrate that there is something uniquely hard-hearted or exclusionary about the Jewish people. We must remember that Jesus is himself Jewish and is speaking as an insider to his own in-group. We grandly miss the point if we hear in this story any condemnation of a specific religious or ethnic group. We must rather look for ourselves in the story. And if we are honest with ourselves at all, we will easily find ourselves there. In bringing up these stories of Elijah and Elisha as examples of God's love and liberation being extended to Gentiles, Jesus is not saying that God is turning his back on the Jewish people in favor of others. Rather, Jesus is using his own religious tradition to illustrate that the year of the Lord's favor is a blessing not just for one specific group, but for all people. This is key to understanding Jesus' illustration. There are obviously myriad examples from the Hebrew scriptures of God providing for the people of Israel. The extension of God's blessings to Gentiles does not negate God's provision for Israel, but provides evidence that God's grace is so abundant that it cannot be contained by any walls of religious identity. And this is what turns the crowds against him. The gospel tells us that they were filled with rage at these words, and they became a mob bent on violence. So let's return to the original question. Why is it that common people react to good news for the poor, release for the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberation of the oppressed with violent rejection? Well, the kingdom of this world, both in the first century and the 21st century, is built on the idea of scarcity. When resources are hoarded by the privileged few, those living without are thrown into competition with their neighbors for the basic necessities of life. We begin to tell ourselves stories that justify why we are more worthy than our neighbors to receive these necessities. Often these stories are absurd. We tell ourselves that the color of our skin makes us more worthy than others. Sometimes the stories are constructed so that they seem to make more sense on a surface level. We are more deserving because 
we work harder. But of course, these stories fail to take into account the fullness of reality, where factors like disability can prevent people from living up to our unfair standards of productivity. Aren't these people still worthy of food, water, and shelter? So while the kingdom of this world is built on the idea of scarcity, the kingdom of God is built on the idea of abundance. At the conclusion of the book of Revelation, which conjures a symbolic vision of God's kingdom on earth, the Lord declares, let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. This is only one of dozens of images of the kingdom of God that illustrate God's boundaryless love for all people. But accepting the reality of the kingdom of God requires a seismic shift in our thinking. Conditioned by a world of scarcity, we are not ready to believe in the reality of God's abundance. We are unable to loosen our grip not only on material things, but on spiritual blessings. Again and again throughout history, human beings build up versions of religion that exclude others from God's grace. If you are not part of our club, you are outside the bounds of God's love. But the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ is that no one, absolutely no one, is outside the bounds of God's love. I pray that we can break free from the limits of the scarcity mindset and truly receive this news with joy. Because when we truly accept this gospel, our lives are transformed. If we accept that God loves not only us, but also our enemies, also the least of these, the left out, those who have been discarded by society. How can we continue to accept an unjust world? We will reject the lie that any human is undeserving of food, water, shelter, dignity, and love. We will transform our world until God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the power of the gospel. Now, a cynical person might say that believing our broken world can ever be repaired is nothing more than a silly pipe dream. After all, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, look what happens to people who threaten the status quo. But in the face of this reality, we must also turn to our faith. Because Jesus showed us that death does not have the final word. As Christians, we believe in resurrection and renewal. We must believe that resurrection and renewal is possible not only in our individual hearts, but in our world. Dorothy Day, a humble advocate for the poor, said this. What we would like to do is change the world. Make it a little simpler for people to feed, clothe, and shelter themselves as God intended them to do.
and by fighting for better conditions, by crying out unceasingly for the rights of the workers, the poor, of the destitute, the rights of the worthy and the unworthy poor, in other words. We can, to a certain extent, change the world. We can work for the oasis, this little cell of joy and peace in a harried world. We can throw our pebble in the pond and be confident that its ever-widening circle will reach around the world. She concluded her statement like this, and here is where I too will end, for this really says it all. We repeat, there is nothing we can do but love. And dear God, please enlarge our hearts to love each other, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy as our friend. Amen.